Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the behaviour-based UX research partner for enterprise leaders who need an independent perspective to align hearts and minds, and also the home of New Zealand's first and only world-class human-centred research and innovation lab. If that sounds interesting, you can find out more about what we do at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to keep on top of the latest thinking and important issues affecting the fields of UX research, product management, and design. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of a diverse range of world-class leaders in those fields. My guest today is Ala Weinberg. Ala is the CEO and culture designer at Spoke & Wheel, the specialised culture design company that she founded in 2019. Through Spoke & Wheel, Ala provides culture consulting and leadership development expertise to companies like DocuSign, Uber, Salesforce, Target and Zendesk, helping them to create work environments where people can think, collaborate and innovate. Before starting Spoken Wheel, Ala worked in executive leadership development and learning and development at Salesforce in the Bay Area. Ala has also worked as a leadership coach for BetterUp and in leadership development and service design for the world-famous and UX circles Adaptive Path. The author of A Culture of Safety, Ala has leveraged her own personal experience, that of others, and the latest research in neuroscience to produce an actionable guide for leaders who want to create safer and more innovative work environments. Ala's wisdom has been shared on stages across the globe, including at Business to Buttons in Stockholm, Sweden, and the Innovation Summit in Lincoln, Nebraska. And now she's here with me for this conversation on Brave UX. Ala, hello, and a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation specifically. Me too, me too, Ala. It's really great to have you here. Now, I mentioned in your introduction that you spent some time at Adaptive Path, and it was about two and a half years before the Capital One merger, as far as I understand, before Capital One acquired Adaptive Path. That was a big period of change in the design industry around about that time, with lots of companies like Adaptive Path being acquired, the talent moving in-house, and a bit of a sea change in design as, as far as that was concerned. What was it that brought you to Adaptive Path, and what stands out from your time there as the, the leading memory or the most lasting memory from that period? What brought me to Adaptive Path is culturally, this was an organization that shared everything that they've created out publicly. And so elevated the entire field of design. And I've always really admired that, that they didn't just keep the methods and the tools and the approaches and their thinking in-house, but they've, they had learning experiences and they shared them with any designer or, or even publicly out, you know, and I wanted to be a part of that end because one of the things that I love to do is to innovate new approaches, new methods, new frameworks. And I, and so I wanted to do that through that vehicle of adaptive path and also learn from all the folks that, you know, highly intelligent, very innovative folks that were there as well. And your experience there, how closely did that align with your expectation of what it would be like before you started? It actually was very close. And this, it was one of the best companies I ever worked for uh, personally, and they really walk their talk. That's the big thing that 
is really important to me. And I haven't experienced that much in my career. And I've been um, in design for almost 20 years now. And, you know, I started as an information architect. That's That was the only title available back then and <laughs> went through every single other title, <laughs> user experience designer, service designer, product designer, every kind of designer. And I found that the folks there really had a really deep understanding of design and practiced it internally as well as externally to clients as well. What would you say that that sort of depth of understanding of design, what does that look like when contrasted against a more shallow understanding or appreciation of design? Are there obvious signals or behaviors or things, or is that difficult to quantify or describe? I think it shows up behaviorally. There aren't steps that we skip. There isn't, there aren't shortcuts. We're going to go research and have deep understanding about the audience or whatever we're doing. We're going to co-design with our clients. We're going to try out new methods, you know, and, and see if they work and, and, also, if they work for the organization that you're working with, and that's the most important. Uh, some what I find in slightly newer or in, you know more less mature organizations is, oh, we know the you know the process of design, we know the double diamond, so we're going to go approach every problem that way. But when you're more experienced, you start to understand well how does that fit in culturally, systemically in the work that's being done and it's not trying to force it but trying to see how can we adapt but but not skip anything uh, but adapt our approaches so that they work for the people and with the people that we're trying to serve basically mm, yeah that's a really clear articulation of that difference i want to ask you about something that's a little different perhaps uh, quite quite different actually now and that is about four years ago you made the brave leap out of enterprise design and leadership development and you started your own company spoke and wheel now your focus in spoken wheel is quite I don't know if it's like remarkably different. I'd be keen to hear hear about your thoughts there as to how it's changed between your role internally to as a consultant. But you work as a work relationship coach and a culture designer, and that's quite a specific focus. And you're serving quite an important, as far as I perceive it to be, a quite an important need that exists out there in the enterprise. So before we get into why you made that leap and the types of things that you're doing at Spoken Wheel. What's the story behind the company name? The story actually comes from a poem by Mark Nepo, um, who I consider personally consider my spiritual teacher. He's a poet, but to me, he's my spiritual teacher because in his poetry, he speaks to specifically, and he's able to name the nuances and the paradoxes and the tensions in life so beautifully. And in this specific poem, and I don't have it up, but maybe you do and you could read it. Uh, there's this little just chunk of it. Uh, he talks about, it's called the spoked wheel. And he talks about how um, we're all spokes as individuals. We can think of ourselves as all spokes of a wheel, but we are not separate from each other. We are connected in the hub. And so for me, when I was thinking about my company name and why I called it this, this way is because I really want to honor in the individual, the 
in the work environment, but I also want to honor the system and that we're all part of a greater whole and that the sum is greater than just the individual parts, but not to forget either the individual or the whole that we're all a part of. Mm, I really like that. And I think you touched on tension earlier on, like the word tension uh, came up. And there is this tension in our culture between the rights of the individual and the rights of the collective. I also really like how you've acknowledged that it's not about one subsuming the other. There is this uh, necessity, I suppose, is what I heard when you were describing that and relationship that exists between us as individuals and the thing or the other people that we're connected to. So thinking about what you're doing in your practice, mm. I understand that there's quite a powerful personal story that sits behind your decision to leave enterprise and to start the company. And I understand that culminated after you had a pretty difficult time after giving birth. Mm -hmm. What was it that you experienced that moved you to do what you've done and start Spoken Wheel? It started honestly from the beginning of my career because I was very early on in the UX field and in tech, kind of at the at the inception and the birth of the field, but I was usually the only woman in those environments. And it didn't, maybe as a, as a younger person, it didn't register or bother me that much, or at least I thought at that time. And, you know, fast forward 20 years and I had a baby and I had severe postpartum anxiety. That was part of my experience with that. And I did have very generous maternity leave for the United States. <laughs> I had very generous maternity leave. But when I came back, I was still struggling with that piece. And my manager, my direct manager is a woman and my skip level manager was a woman. And they didn't, they were not supportive of that. And uh, basically let me know that I was underperforming because I was struggling, you know, with mental health and emotionally as a result of giving birth. And both of them have children. So none of these things made sense to me. And at that moment, you know, I would come home crying every night and I, I just, I was like, I can't continue on like this. And then I, I think it kind of hit me retrospectively, it kind of hit me the harm that I feel I ex that, you know, was my lived experience as the only woman in tech for a long time that I brushed off and I was like, oh, this is the way it is. I'm just breaking into the field. I'm new. I don't know what I'm talking about. It all sort of culminated for me in that moment. And in my book, I even write about that there was another individual and it was at this company that was tr um, trying to undermine me, but I wasn't believed and I wasn't supported and I was really struggling and I didn't feel safe there. And I realized also historically, I haven't felt safe in a lot of the environments that I worked with. But actually, even coming back to your original question about adaptive path, that was the first environment ever that I felt safe in. And that's what I really loved about it. And I could really innovate and I could really be myself and I could really contribute where in the last bit before I went 
and did my own company, I felt like I was contracting and unable to even show up at a, like a mediocre level, let alone at a, like a high level to work. And this is also where I feel a lot of organizations miss this. They think, you know, you, emotions don't matter at work. Leave those at the door, you know, just get the mm -hmm. work done. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not human mm -hmm. and that's not possible. We, I, I mean, a lot of people, even right now, currently in this moment, are struggling with burnout, are struggling with exhaustion, are struggling with mental health issues, depression, anxiety, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, all sorts of things. And this kind of pervasive mindset that human beings just need to continually perform and sustain at a certain level um, without end, that, that 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 should never waver, that there or it should always continue to go up in some way is not humane. It's not human and it's not how people work. Kind of in that moment when I decided to leave because it, honestly, I was just, it was really affecting my health. I couldn't continue from a health perspective that I just didn't want anyone else to be in this situation. I really wanted to be the change and, and take this really diff really difficult, really challenging moment that I was in and hopefully make it better for others and, and hope, you know, and make a change in cultures and, and create, uh, help create even within a team environment better and, you know, cultures and environments where people can feel safe and truly be human beings and not have an expectation that you're a robot that can continually sustain to perform and per sustain performance forever. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that framing as humans, as robots. Personally, I feel like I uh, worked like a robot maybe for the first 15 years of my career until I hit a wall and then I had to confront some behaviors, my own personal behaviors and how I was framing uh, my abilities, I suppose. But coming back to what you were saying there around the wanting to, to be the change, now it, it strikes me listening to you describe this situation. I can obviously feel and hear in your words the gravity, the still very, how personal and how close this is still. I mean, this is only a few years yeah. ago. You had the, and I'm going to use my own words here, you had the strength to want to be that change even when you'd had to leave because you realized you couldn't continue for your own health. So it's, it strikes me that you were tapping into something deeper here. You know, maybe it was anger. I don't know what it was, but what was it that even when you were sounded like you're at one of your lowest lows that gave you the, the strength and the will to be that change? I do feel it's anger, but in a protective sense, not angry at, but angry for all the other people that I know and I've interviewed and I've talked to and I've coached personally that, ex you know, have experienced similar environments continue to, to, to this day, you know, obviously I haven't changed the world yet. <laughs> yes. Being the operative word. <laughs> and I guess I, I felt called more to uh, protect people and uh, and hopefully reduce harm to people where I could and where companies were open 
to that rather than, oh, I'm going to fight against you and this horrible system. It's, it's, I'm fighting for something, for someone, for people, for humanity in that sense. And, and wanting, yeah. And like taking the pain that I've experienced and the hardships that I've experienced and basically saying, I don't want others to experience that. Yeah, so there's definitely, it sounds like there's not a, a rage as such there, but there's been a channeling of that anger at the status quo that you've been able to bring through into your practice. Yes. These sorts of environments, and I haven't worked in enterprise, so I just have to have to make that clear. I imagine that these sorts of environments aren't obvious from the outset. You know, they're not necessarily obvious when you're sitting there across the interview table, uh, you, you know, you're doing your meet and greet of all the people that you may be working with. You know, these things, it strikes me, are not necessarily above board because everyone's on their best behavior when they're being interviewed and while they're interviewing, I would assume. That may not be the case. So please let me know if, if there are like really uh, obvious red flags. But if they're not, for people that there's a lot of change in the job market right now, yes. right? So for people that are looking for that next opportunity to find a really great culture and environment to work in, to thrive, to design, to innovate, to be human, what are some of the ways that they can evaluate the safety of the culture that they are considering joining? Mm. It's a little bit hard in the interview process because people want to, you know, just put on the best face that they have and represent the company in the best ways. But questions to ask, and it could be even of your current role, you know, that you're in and the current company that you're in, is to ask questions about the how. So a lot of times people ask questions like, well, what am I going to do? What are my responsibilities? Um, it's the what questions, but the how questions are actually the ones that are going to get you a little bit more. Uh, so it's like, how do you do work around here? How does work look like? What happens if somebody makes a mistake? How do you talk about that? What if you feel someone is not performing? How are those conversations? had? How often do you take, do you, the person you're interviewing or talking to take breaks? How often do does leadership take breaks? How often do you have really hard, difficult conversations about things that aren't working in the company? What would be something that would never happen here? Trying to kind of dig mm, in a I little really like bit mm. <laughs> to how are people relating to each other? So my definition of culture, I know there's a lot of definitions of culture. I have a very simple one. My definition of culture is that culture is the outcome of how people relate to each other. And so the, the main question really is to try to dig into the relationships. How do people interact with each other? How are decisions made? How do we convince people? How do we get buy-in? You know, if somebody's struggling, how is that handled, right? So it's it's all about how we treat each other, how we interact with each other, how we relate to each other. And I have not, and I've worked for multiple enterprise companies. I haven't found that those that 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 size of a company, enterprise is a very large size company. Like Salesforce was 
60,000, I think, when I left. <laughs> it's 80,000 now, you know, something of that scale. Yeah, um, that humanity starts to get eroded at that size. People start to become numbers. People start to become resources. People start to get evaluated as to, you know, how much value add or revenue that they're bringing in. And so it starts to become mechanized and industrialized in that respect. And so asking those questions about, you know, in each team is so different. There's subcultures because each, because it's so large, you have, you're going to absolutely have subcultures. And so to understand for each team, how are things handled? You know, if, like in my situation, I wish I would have known ahead of time that if somebody's struggling emotionally, that how, how would that be handled? Well, putting me on a performance improvement plan is, was not the right answer for me. You know, that was not, that did not feel supportive. These questions, they, uh, they seem really critical, really smart, really uh, savvy things to be asking hiring managers and others that you may encounter in the hiring process about. I don't want to suggest that people are willing, willingly disingenuous in their responses, but I am curious to understand just what you might need to read between the lines mm -hmm. in terms of people's responses, like what sort of things should you be listening out for in research, for example, and in these conversations, I find the role of the supplementary question is quite useful for getting more depth around an answer. Like what sort of things should people be bearing in mind when they're posing what could be considered quite provocative or challenging questions from what also may be perceived to be a position of less power in the relationship? You know, when you're going mm -hmm. for a job, you generally people feel like they have less power than their employers. What sort of things do people need to be conscious of and careful about or aware of? I think the way that people answer is more telling than the content of the answer. Mm -hmm. So that's where you kind of have to read between the lines. So people don't have an answer. Huge red flag. Oh, we've never talked about it. We've never thought about it. Well, this organization doesn't think about how people work together. They don't think about teaming. They don't think about culture. That's not top of mind for them, right? Or if folks are talking in very general terms and being abstract about it, then you can tell, like, I'm actually, they're not feeling safe to disclose what's really going on. And so, and we as human beings are natural lie detectors, to be <laughs> honest. And so you can kind of, you can kind of tell if somebody's holding back, mm -hmm. but also I know a lot of people will feel scared to ask such a question. I guess I would invite people to be scared and do it anyway, that it's okay to feel scared because if those types of questions are not okay in this culture, that's the biggest signal for you to, to stay away. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not yeah. getting the job because you asked that question, they just saved you from a really terrible experience. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> and I know that your focus isn't necessarily solely on the individuals or the individual contributors mm -hmm. in this ecosystem of enterprise. It's also very much, or I understand it's also very much placed on the leaders that want to enable better cultures that are committed to creating uh, safe and innovative work environments. Mm -hmm. One of the stories that I've heard you use to illustrate 
uh, what culture is and how people can go about changing culture is back in 2018 when you gave your talk at Business to Buttons. You started with a really powerful story about a woman named Linda Clyatt Wayman. And I wanted to, to give you some space here to tell people about the story because it's a really po positive and powerful one. So who is Linda and what is it about her story that you felt was important for enterprise leaders to hear? Linda is a principal at an, at an under-resourced, underprivileged school in the United States. And she's part of a larger ecosystem and a community that has a lot of violence, a lot of trauma, and also generally serves people that have been historically oppressed, especially in the United States. And the way that she really turned the school around was how she related to everyone that she met. And she did that by relating to everyone with love. And she would get on the you know, school announcer every morning and she would say, in case no one told you today, I want you to know that I love you. And, and then she would come and, and, you know, she has had a lot of tasks to do. She had a lot of things to clean up and, you know, uh, a lot of problems. And, but she solved them through interacting with people through love and not punishment or reward, which is what most corporate environments do. They motivate people through the carrot and stick model. And we and there is research that shows that this is harmful and traumatic for people. It can cause trauma, a workplace trauma for people. And yet we still have this pervasive mindset that the way to motivate people is through this carrot and stick model. Where in actuality and in neuroscience, just the way our nervous system and our brain works, people are motivated by connection. People are motivated by love. People are motivated by people that they know they'll be seen, they'll be heard, they'll be understood, they'll be cared for, they'll be supported. Then I can relax and I can bring my best self and I can be innovative and I can be creative and I can come up with new approaches and new solutions and new frameworks. But if I'm scared every day that I'm going to lose my job or I'm scared like I was every day that I'm gonna be punished or put on a PIP plan or things like that, I'm gonna give you the bare minimum. And this is also what, like, this is what I tell leaders is that you want psychological safety in your environment because you're paying these people and you want to get the, you wanna get what you pay for from them. And to do that, you need to care about them. You need to feel safe and they need to feel relaxed enough to be able to do their job. But if I'm spending my energy worrying, creating workarounds, fighting, you know, avoiding doing all of these things, I'm not working. I'm not innovating. I'm not being creative. I'm spending all my energy on all that other stuff. The turnaround in Linda's school is remarkable. And I don't actually, unfortunately, have the statistics at hand, but the, uh, the results in terms of attendance, the results in terms of scholarships test for scores. senior students, test scores, all of it uh, is absolutely remarkable. And I've heard you say about what Linda did, and I'll, I'll quote you now, you said, Linda set the context of the school, not the content. So why does that difference in focus matter? 
the context is the environment. It's the being of who, who we're being as leaders. Mm -hmm. How are we being together? Again, how we're relating to each other. The content is the what. What are we working on? You know, what's the design challenge we're wanting to solve? What is the behavior we're wanting to engender from our customers or our users, right? What people forget is that both are important. There's always this misconception or maybe a myth. We have to focus on one or the other. We can only focus on how people work together and how people are being together, or we have to focus on what they're doing and the actions that they're taking. But they're actually it's an and, it's not an or. In order to accomplish what you want and to do what you want, you also need to focus on how are you showing up to together and to each other? And how are you being and when you're taking the action? Because that actually affects, if you're being loving, that affects how that action is going to impact the world, impact your customers, impact whatever it is you're doing. If you're taking that action from cynicism, from anger, from burnout, you know, that's just, it's just going to look, you can take the exact same action and it's going to look, and you're going to get so different and you're going to get completely different results from it as well. I've only heard of one design leader before speaking with you that was able to talk about love in the context of the enterprise and that's PepsiCo's chief design officer Mauro Puccini and he's written a book effectively around um, mm. love and he talks about the role of love in design and he's been able to do this because he has had a track record over 20-30 years that he's been in these positions of building proof points, proof point after proof point after proof point. Mm. It's in a different context though to which you're talking about love and why I'm interested in this word is you touched on before, for example, how the culture that you experienced when, when you returned to work after giving birth, even though your manager and your skip level manager uh, were women, there, it seemed to me at least, and I'm projecting here, but it seemed that that was very devoid of love or care, even at a lower level maybe, or, or depth of care, uh, but definitely of love there. And I wonder if this is partly to do with the overall patriarchal type approach that our organizations have adopted, their stance, their posture, uh, and how that might play out in terms of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable mm -hmm. to talk about at work. And I promise you I'm getting to a question here. So the question is, how does one in an environment such as that begin to introduce a more loving way of being in order to foster a safer culture without being shut down or without running into such strong resistance to such a seemingly out of place concept in the enterprise how do you start like where do you begin to turn the tide and i mentioned this in my talk at business and buttons you start closer in you always start close in so start with your team your organization your reports your peers start as close in as possible and then work out oh maybe i can be more just even be more kind we don't even have to use the word love be more kind to my cross functional partners 
maybe I can listen to them and understand what their struggles and pressures are. Maybe they can feel really heard by me and, and that will build trust. Uh, trust is something that organizations is a word they use all the time. And what I find funny about it is what they really mean is love, but they just can't say the word love. Yeah. So they <laughs> yeah. say trust. Yeah. And in my head, whenever somebody talks to me and says, oh, we, you know, we, we did an engagement survey and we see that, you know, you know, our employees really don't have a lot of trust in their managers and in the leadership. In my mind, I just substitute the word love for it. <laughs> and so it's always starting closer in. And again, it's that being part, what you can be loving. You can show up without ever saying the word. You can just show up and be loving to other human beings. And we have so little of that at work. And this is why I do this. What I do this is why I do what I do. Because we spend 90,000 hours of our life on average at work, of our life, then we spend more time with our colleagues than we do with the partners that we choose to, to live with and to spend our life with. And it's devoid of the main nourishment that we need as human beings. We're biologically wired for love. Like we have to have it. It's biologically wired into our survival. And yet it's devoid and it's missing at work. It's... <laughs> That's not okay with me. That's no. why I do what I do. <laughs> yeah. And when you, know, when you were describing that and I was reflecting on the conversation so far, I couldn't help but wonder why is, like, why is this? And maybe this is an impossible question to answer. No, I have an answer for that. You have an answer. Yeah. Okay, cool. I do. I do. I've been wanting to talk about this and it's been, and I've been scared. So I'm going to even admit that I've been scared to, to post about it or to talk about this. But there's the re the reason goes back to it's actually historical in America, which is where you know I'm based and where I know more of the historical context and, and I don't know as much about New Zealand or Australia or other countries. But in America, there was a there, uh, historically we've had slaves, right, and we've had slavery, and there were certain practices that masters of slaves did such as productive, you know, measuring productivity and how long somebody could, um, how long a slave could live and, and how, how productive they could be over their lifetime. And again, using punishment and reward for getting people to do what they do. But also the mindset was that slaves aren't humans. They're not human. They're slaves. That did never went away that those exact mindsets and beliefs were present in the industrial revolution where a factory workers were cogs uh, and not human, right? They're cogs in a wheel. And we wanted to uh, use scientific management, which is an entire hoax to, to increase productivity for them and increase output. And that's made it into modern management, same thing as well. We have performance reviews. We and we have I, I read every day leaders wondering, well, why are folks unproductive? Well, you just laid off 10% of your workforce. What what do you think is gonna happen? <laughs> and it has its roots in the belief that some people are not human. And nobody goes around thinking this consciously, but all of our structures, our systems, our cultures, our practices, our processes 
are based in that mindset. And what happens in in the corporate world is um, same thing that happened in factories, same thing that happened on the plantations. There's the leaders that do the thinking and there's the workers that do the executing. And that is still true to this day. And the people that are executing, that are implementing, are somehow less than are than the people that are doing the strategic leading and the thinking. And it all goes back to forgetting that people are human beings and treating them as in, completely inhuman. And what I'm the kind of that kind of brings me to. Sorry if I'm going on a little bit long, but like, no, not at all. Continue. It brings me to where I am right now in in my thinking, which actually has evolved since I wrote the book. One of the biggest mm, deficits or missing pieces in the corporate world in how we work together is remembering that people have a body that's biological, and that body gets sick. And the body gets tired and that body has feelings and that we're, that we have up to, you know, seasons in our life where we're sometimes we're really productive and great and doing well. And sometimes, you know, it would go down and we need a break and, and we can't continue, but then we'll, we'll go and go back up and, and that that's how humans and nature and natural beings work. And where I am right now with my work is that our bodies have a nervous system and every human being has a nervous system, which is connected to our brain. And our nervous system is really the thing that determines how safe we feel in an environment. And our nervous system, if we're treated as inhuman, as not a human being, as a cog or a property of someone, our nervous system will be, every single day will be stressed out, dysregulated, feel threatened. And then we get sick because we live in human bodies. We get sick. Our bodies get sick. And that's what happened to me. And that's why I stopped working. There is so much in there. So many. (laughs) I know. It's like. (laughs) Uh, It's really, it's really interesting. I I really mean that. I'm not just a flippant way of using the word interesting. It is really interesting what you're saying here. And what's been going on for me as you've been talking about this is a few things that I've listened to or read recently. Uh, one of them was, I believe it was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, mm-hmm. which is an old text. Uh, Viktor Frankl. Very was, familiar with it. Yeah, very familiar with it. Mm-hmm. So for people that aren't, Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi death camps. And um, he's also a psychiatrist, a, yes. a, a Viennan from the School of Viennan Psychiatry, I think, in Austria. Anyway, a really great short read, very powerful read, very provocative read, very dark and very light read, and I highly recommend it. He talks about in in the camps, in the concentration camps, he talks about and many things, but one of the things he talks about is that the people that were able to find meaning in their existence were the ones that mm-hmm. survived and the people that couldn't were the ones that didn't. Mm-hmm. But he also talked about the role of the collaborators. So people that were in the camps as prisoners but that were afforded extra provisions and better conditions than their peers by effectively working with the Nazis to keep an eye on the prison population. And eventually those people, sadly, uh, also meet the same end, most of them anyway. And why I'm talking about this is because it seems to me that you're scratching at the 
shared belief that we hold in society of the relationship between capital and labor. Yes. However, and I'm no Marxist philosopher, I don't have any real depth of, uh, of knowledge here, but what is interesting to me about this is that it strikes me that a lot of middle and upper management, unless they're in the C-suite, not, and this isn't damning, this isn't, I'm not trying to damn these people, but unwittingly perhaps are playing the role of the collaborator uh, to enforce the status quo and this lack of love that you're speaking about potentially in the system uh, in order for the system to perpetuate. And it's also making me think of a, a lyric or a song. I don't know if you're familiar with the band Muse, but they're a British heavy rock band and they have a song called Resistance. And there's mm. a it's a really great song, actually. The lyrics are worth having a read. Uh, but it says uh, one of the lyrics is love is our resistance. They'll mm. keep us apart and they won't stop breaking us down. But touching on this idea that love is the thing that will see us through. And anyway, I'm kind of going a little bit off uh, off track here, uh, but it really does strike me that you are touching at this uh, unwritten acceptance of the way in which we have to be in these institutions that exist outside of our homes, which you've pointed out we spend a lot of time at. I agree and that middle management and even more senior management, but not in the C-suite, are collaborators and I think this is what happened to me and my managers is they've internalized this, this way of working, this, this unconscious belief that it's been, you know, intergenerationally inherited. I'm not blaming anyone. It's just been an inheritance. And then people are like, well, this is how it is. This is, this is what has made business successful. So I'm going to continue it because that's what we know. And that's it. But in many ways, it's, you know, like women, even people of color in, in positions, other historically oppressed groups in, in more leadership positions start to internalize this and act sometimes even more in a more harmful way than their white colleagues. And because that's the way to stay in the position and to, and to get ahead in these organizations. Perpetuating this is how this is back to the house, how you progress, how you go up the ladder. And for me personally, I decided I don't want to climb the ladder. I, I don't want to, I don't want that ladder. It's not for me. Yet it seems that you want to, and this is a bloated word here, you want to disrupt, you want to try and change this culture that exists. And about this, I've heard you say before, and I'll quote you again, culture is notoriously difficult to shift, to design, to change, because you're working with collective identity. You're mm -hmm. working with a collective ego. And we, of course, we've just been taking a 10,000 foot view of you know, yes. all of uh, Western business practice <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and some of the behaviors that it, it leads to. So if we accept that culture is notoriously difficult to shift, is it even worth attempting? Is this a situation that is so far removed from our control as individuals to influence that we're better off not expending energy in an attempt to change it? I like this question. It's a good challenging question. Clearly my answer is no, <laughs> because it's not okay to be a collaborator and continue to knowingly be part of a system that harms human beings. And I do think, albeit slowly, 
I do think macro collective level, we are shifting, we are moving to something different. And, and I'm just one person. And I know there's many working in this kind of field and in this industry that are hoping to at least point it into the direction of love versus more greed or more harm to human beings, more destruction, more separateness. And this is, again, going back to the name of my company, Spoken Wheel, we're not separate from each other. And there's this pain, I think, so many people feel, especially at work, that I'm just an individual contributor. I'm just an individual and I'm not part of anything and I'm separate. And there's all these studies by Gallup that says, oh, purpose at work, you know, having a, a shared purpose is so important to engagement. Well, there's a reason for that because nobody actually wants to feel separate. We want to be part of a collective and we are part of a collective of a human race. We have to be really honest with ourselves and say the way that we have been working is harmful to human beings and we need to change that and it's not okay. Just like other systems we've had like slavery, <laughs> like feudalism, like other systems of, of the ways that people have collectively worked together have been harmful to a set of people. And we're, we can continue to evolve that. That can continue to change. And it should. That is not, it's just, there are some things that are not okay. And, and we can't be like throwing our hands up in there, be like, oh, can't change it. Too, too bad. I guess I'll just put my head down and that's it. We can't stand by and just let people be hurt. We've seen a, a glimmer of hope as far as uh, white collar jobs were concerned through COVID and coming out the other side of the tail end of mm. the pandemic, the worst of it, uh, with the shift to flexible working arrangements. But now we're also seeing a reversion a to, the, to the mean, right? Yeah, we're seeing yeah. this freedom, I would say. It is a freedom. It is a luxury yeah. and a freedom that we've been afforded. But there are some very big companies that are now saying that's no longer okay. You need to think very carefully about whether or not you return to the office. It's it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a veiled threat. I mean, let's be honest. Oh, yes. That, yeah, there's no mincing <laughs> words here, right? If you want to be read between the lines, here you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people aren't even being subtle about it. You know? <laughs> and you've you've encouraged previously people to reflect and culture culture as the world changes culture and organizations, things shift, things merge, so they're not static. You've encouraged people to think about their organization's culture critically, and you've said, and I'll quote you again here, you've said the key question to ask yourself is, how is the current culture serving us? Now, I think that us in that question is possibly mm -hmm. the key word. Mm -hmm. And why I say that is a culture might be serving some of us more than it serves the rest of us, which disincentivizes those people who it's currently working best for to change it. Now, again, this is kind of a, a thorny question to, to pitch you, but what is it about a situation like that where there is clearly culture working better for others that how, I mean, how do you navigate situations like this? I mean, you touched on earlier starting close in, I think that's mm -hmm. the word, the words you use. Yes. Like, how do you start to tackle a situation where the incentives or the power structures are so leaned uh, or, or leaned so powerfully one way rather than the other? That's a great question. You do it collectively. That, that's where that us comes in. What corporate cultures, and again, I, I can only speak in America, 
what they've traditionally done is say, oh, you, Brandon, are having a problem. So you need to go get some help or here's a benefit and you need to solve it. Not, they don't ask the question of what is happening systemically in our organization that is causing this experience. Like for example, for me, always feeling as the only woman in the room and feeling both invisible, but also highly visible at the same time. Like my opinions are are invisible, but it's very visible that I'm the only woman in that situation. And what has traditionally happened is, especially at the C-suite and the leadership level, problems have been pushed down to the individual, but they're not individual problems to solve. And kind of taking a little bit from the union playbook, the way that problems get changes when a group of people, not one person, a group of people says, this is a problem and we need, and we want to see change and we demand change. And I I worked for Salesforce before going off on my own. And one of the things that did work in Salesforce is people would uh, put together petitions and they would petition Mark Benioff. And so it would be a collective voice. If you wanted to, you could sign it as an employee And it would be a collective way saying, this is not okay with us. For example, there were people that were not okay with Salesforce being used um, on the border of the United States and Mexico as as part of the border control. They, They didn't feel that that was values aligned or moral thing to do. And so created a petition. And this is the, I think this is the biggest mistake that people make. Even more senior leaders, they say, oh, I have a problem. I can see on my team that the impact of you know, not enough love of impact of continuing to drive for productivity or the impact of laying off 10% of the workforce, but not changing any of the workload, you know, just, just piling it onto the the folks that are left and saying, oh, I'm going to go have that. I, as an individual, I'm going to go have that conversation. No, 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 no. It has to be a collective conversation. It has to a group of people, hopefully a good size number of people have to say, no, this isn't working. This is harmful. This environment is not working for us, for this group of people, right? And so collective voices is what truly creates change, not representatives and not individual voices, collective voices, because there is a lot of power in the collective, which is why in most large companies, they they want to be like, they want people to believe it's the indiv- it's an, an individual problem that you can solve with some benefits or some other support from HR or something like that. Where it's not a collective, it's not an individual issue. It's a systemic issue that many people are impacted by, and we need to uh, raise the alarm as a collective. Mm-hmm. Now that's a. A strong alarm bell to be ringing. That is a strong alarm bell to be ringing, yes. And I know a lot of like unions are used in more um, labor type of work, uh, and it's less so in white collar uh, tech work, uh, work where UX is done in product design, those types of work. But if that's actually missing, that that collective action is is what's missing and what the, what the problem is. Why? things aren't changing and people who are uh, disincentivized to change don't (laughs) because again, they can say, oh, oh, I'm sorry you're having that experience. Here's some resources to help you as an individual versus 
this entire group of people is being harmed by our this environment and this culture and things really need to change here. Well, let's take that thread and bring it forward into a conversation about fear, which sits alongside a lot of your thinking and previous mm -hmm. things that you've talked about in regards to cultures that are conducive to innovation. And look, reading between the lines, this whole conversation, our broader benefit as humanity, as people that spend a lot of time in these places that we call workplaces, you gave a talk, I think it was last year, called Fear, the Human Barrier to Innovation. Yeah. And I thought this was a particularly brave and potentially subversive in a good way, framing of fear in the organization and the things that you were saying in that talk, it's definitely worthwhile people have a watch of that and I will link to it in the show notes. And you referenced a study from McKinsey in there that 85% of the executives who responded said that fear holds back innovation often or always at their companies. And the study also found that in low innovation companies, the following fears were the most prevalent and I'll talk to those now, fear of career impact, fear of criticism, fear of uncertainty. Now, you talked also about the importance of realising co like collective strength or the importance of not trying to change everything as an individual that we, we can, through our relationships with others, we can actually affect change on large structures and systems. I want to ask you about a famous quote from an American president, FDR, when he was taking office, I think, during the Great Depression is where this comes from. And he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. How do you feel about that statement in our current context as workers in this world today? Is it as simple as choosing not to be fearful and therefore enabling this positive change that you would like to see at work happen? Or is it more complicated than that? We can't choose to feel or not feel something. We do feel it. For me, it's not stepping over fear or ignoring fear. It's acknowledging I feel scared and it doesn't have to hold me back. It doesn't have to be a barrier to me. And it actually loses a lot of its power, the fear, it loses a lot of its power once it is acknowledged. And in my book, I even have an exercise, which is called the fear inventory, which I tell I, every coach, every leader I coach, I make them do this, is, you know, write down all the fears you have on a daily basis. I call it emotional hygiene, just like you brush your teeth every day. You have to acknowledge and see the fears. There's nothing wrong with fear. That's, again, a natural human biological, neurobiological response to life. Totally normal. But what we do is we pretend there isn't fear. And that's what gets us into trouble. When, and even in my book, I say fear is the opposite of safety, not danger. Fear is the opposite of safety. And why all of these really outdated slavery-based practices are so entrenched in modern management is completely due to fear. Well, if I change it, is my business going to the fear? Like my business is going to end, you know, this is going to cause us to lose revenue, profit, all the things that are important to us. We're not going to get the results, fear. We're not going to get results that we 
that we really want. So this is going to be the end of us if we don't do things the way everybody else has done them for a century. And so fear is the thing that's driving the lack of love at work, that's driving toxicity, that's driving harm. And it's not that people feel fear, it's that they're not even acknowledging or aware that they have the fear. And so, and that's the, that's when fear is driving you versus you being able to look at it, to name it, and then to choose how you want to act. When you're in fear, you're not choosing anymore. Fear's, fear's kind of pushing you to act, to show up, to behave, to relate to each other in different ways, in harmful ways. I want to ask you about some of the ways that we can run fear rather than fear running us. But before mm -hmm. I, I do that, I, I want to dig into what you just said there about the opposite of fear being safety. Because mm -hmm. this is something that I, this really sort of made me stop and think because the first thing that came to mind for me is the opposite of fear is courage. And I wanted mm -hmm. to explore this with you because obviously I've got a default that's set to the opposite of fear is courage rather mm -hmm. than the opposite of fear is safety. Mm -hmm. How is the opposite of fear safety as opposed to something uh, perhaps more romantic like courage? <laughs> I love the word courage because in it, the roots of courage is core, which means love in French. So we're still talking about love. So courage is about the trans, like if you do a literal translation of courage from Fran a French, it's you throw your heart over the fence first and then you follow it. So it's, it's, it's a really heart based kind of thing, which I think is really fun. And that's, I, that's why it's one of my, one of my favorite words <laughs> in general, but why it's not the opposite of fear it has to, it goes for me, it goes back to biology. Fear is a state of our nervous system. It's a dysregulated state. It's a survival state of our nervous system. Safety is a connected state of our nervous system. I feel connected to you, to the world, to other people, to nature. I feel a, con a connection to something greater than myself and to other human beings, to other nervous systems. And so when we're in fear, we no longer have that connection. We feel that separateness. When we are in safety, we do have that connection. And even from a cognitive standpoint, when we're in safety, we're able to, our, literally our mind can think broader. We have a broader perspective and more thought power available to us than when we're in fear. Because when we're in survival mode, our body literally will shut down parts of our brain that are not necessary, like analysis, like rational thought, <laughs> that are not necessary for our survival. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you know, I've had moments where I felt very anxious and it almost felt like I've been in a tunnel. I might, even my peripheral vision kind of darkens a little bit. I feel like I'm in a tunnel. I feel it's a bit narrow. And in my thinking, I can't get my way out of it. It's just, there, there, there's no possibilities that are available to me. The options seem so limited. When I can reconnect, when I can regulate, get back to safety, that's when things are possible. And that's from safety, I can have courage. And that from safety, I can run fear, not fear running me. 
But if I'm in, if I'm dysreg, if my nervous system is dysregulated, I'm in fight or flight mode. Okay. I'm in fear. Fear is running me now. Now I'm going to go shoot off that email to my manager that I will regret later. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, now I'm going to just take, you know, reply all to some people and be angry about some things. Those are not courageous actions. That's fear running you. Your nervous systems feel safe. When inside your body, you can feel a sense of relaxation. Then you can throw your heart over the fence first and follow it and have courage to do that. There's nothing wrong with feeling a little bit of fear because like that little bit of stress is good for us as human beings. But chronic fear is what really hurts us and makes us sick. And so we actually can't have courage if we're in fear, but we can when we feel safe. You can't engage in a cor courageous action without there being an element of real or perceived risk. And so what I'm hearing you say there is that your ability to take better risks, even though you may still feel some fear, mm -hmm. whether it's a, in a corporate innovation context or just in anything in your life, you are able to take better risks and make better decisions when you start from a position of safety than from when you're starting from a position of fear. A hundred percent. Well so summarized, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, I think you did a pretty fantastic job yourself. <laughs> so thinking about this then, thinking about needing, well, optimally needing or wanting to mm -hmm. operate from a position of safety for many reasons. Like you said before, there's some incentives aligned here for companies, right? Like if their staff can operate, their people can operate from a position of safety, they should therefore by by accepting the definition we've just been discussing, be able to be more effective, bring more of their self to their jobs, make better decisions, and let's uh, not beat around the bush here. That should translate down to better revenue, better profit, Absolutely. better company performance, right? So is this, is, a, is this a case of us just needing to engage our logical and rational brains to decide or to evaluate situations and then decide that we just are going to operate from safety? Like how does one, if you are operating from, you know, in, in an unsafe uh, nervous state, like how does one bring oneself to that place of safety? Is this just off one's own volition? It can happen at a few different levels. You know, as an individual, you can recognize, oh, I'm not feeling a sense of safety. I, I feel chronically stressed out and stress is a euphemism for fear. So I'm, I feel chronically in fear and uh, start to go out and build more one-on-one -on -one, like connections and supporters in your organization. Okay. So a lot of that is a signal that you don't have enough social support. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I know a lot of people face that, especially in the remote world where, you know, we don't talk to each other unless we create a meeting, you know, and that's intentional. And so part of that is if that's true for you, be more intentional and, and start to, to have conversations with folks, not about work, just to get to know each other, just to build those connections and those relationships. Super important for our sense of safety at the team or organization level can evaluate what are our practices, what are our rituals, what are our processes? Are they creating more connection or less connection? And start to change those. And then at the organizational level, what are our policies? What are organizational structures? Where, and honestly, I have not 
to this day have not had an organization that's been willing to do this. But to ask yourself the really hard question of how um, is this organization causing harm and to whom? Not if, but how. How are we causing harm and to whom? You know, we can you can ask you can find out the answer to that very qualitatively. You can find that quantitatively. There's many ways to approach that. And then acknowledge that and speak to it and not in America, people like to, especially organizations like to do this toxic positivity thing. But it's okay. We're still great. No, we can say like we care and we want to acknowledge that we are causing harm in XYZ way. And then make, you know, start to to make changes and put put money behind it. An organization, what they value is not what's on their value board or their poster. They value what they invest in, what they put their money behind. And so if you as an organization are like C-suite leaders, ask yourselves that question, are willing to have and see that hard, that hard answers, put money behind it to start to make those changes, we're going to see some real change in the corporate world. Well, let's talk about leaders. Oh, that now. takes My- courage, I think. <laughs> it does take courage. It 100% takes courage. It takes courage for those leaders in the C-suite that you were touching on there. It takes courage for people to band together in some form of collective, large or small, to agitate for change. Um, courage is nothing meaningful and this is a broad sweeping generalization, but I feel like nothing meaningful would have ever happened with our human race if uh, we were devoid of courage. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about, and I'm mindful of time, so it's probably one of my last questions for sure. you. I want to talk to you about the courage that exists between those who are in IC roles or lower management roles uh, to have hard conversations or perceived to be hard, difficult conversations with those in the status hierarchy that are above them or who have greater status. Now, you were interviewed a couple of years ago, I think not long after your book came out by Jeff Gotthelf, who uh, is effectively one of the co-owners of the publishing company that published the book. Yes. Yeah, and at one point Jeff said, and I'll quote Jeff now, he said, And most of the clients that I work with, we can say whatever we want as long as it agrees with what the boss wants. And then you said while laughing, or doesn't make the boss look bad in front of his boss. Now, that was a light moment in that conversation. You know, it was was clear, you know, that you were having a, a moment there together, but you were also touching on a, an unspoken truth, I suppose, right? You were, you were talking about something here that's well understood from anyone that operates in any form of hierarchy. And this is really the law of the corporate jungle. Mm-hmm. So is there a, a rule here for trying to create this culture of safety at work that you can go and do this as long as you don't make your boss or your boss look bad? that there are definite boundaries on the actions that you can take to foster a culture like this. And one of these boundaries or red lines that you must not cross is do anything that makes your boss or your boss's boss not look the greatest. I don't think that can be a rule if you're trying to create safety, because then that would just be performative and it wouldn't create true safety for the most vulnerable or historically oppressed or 
people that are harmed or not being served by the culture. It doesn't mean you have to burn it all down. It doesn't mean you have to grenade anything. (laughs) What it does mean is you have to have, again, the courage to have the hard conversations to say, hey, this isn't um, some of your actions, dear leader, some of your actions, manager, are what's causing the lack of safety in this team, in this organization. And it's also on the company itself to not tolerate leaders that are causing harm, but are high performers. Oh, they're bringing, you know, that department's bringing in the good revenue. So we don't care if this person's racist. Well, then it's no longer a safe environment. And so actually crossing those lines and having, again, a really, you can, you can have a kind and loving conversation with people. It doesn't have to be accusatory. It doesn't have to be threatening to look at their role in it and what's happening and look at reality, although it will, might be harsh and it might be hard and it might be unsavory, look at it together and work together to solve it, not be against each other. That's the key. In Even in this quest to change culture, people create adversaries. I'm against these leaders that are causing this, but that won't change it. Now you're, now you're creating internal conflict. What you want to do is to say there's a systemic problem. We're both going to look at it together. We're both going to be on the same side looking at this thing outside of us together. It's not between us. It's not your fault. I'm not blaming you. It's outside of us. And how are we going to change that? And that may not be an easy conversation. And there may be tension there between, well, if we change that, we might see a dip in revenue for a short, maybe in the short term. Maybe that will have a business impact. I'm not going to say it won't. But it's like the the goal is to have the conversation. If you if you tiptoe around or you try to make sure that the manager doesn't get upset or or save space or their job is not on the line and they're okay, you're never gonna get to the root cause of really what's going on and having the honest conversations that I've yet still to this day I'm waiting for people to be willing to have. I'm trying to tie together a bunch of thoughts that are going on for me in this moment. And what they are, I feel what I'm trying to stitch together here is if you're operating in a culture that's unsafe, you need to be able to, from a place that maybe objectively from a place of fear, have the courage to ask the right questions, have the kinds of conversations that are needed in order to shift that culture to a culture of safety. But that, from, in order to do that, you do have to take a risk. You do have to run your fears. It's not going to happen if you play it safe or pretend that you're safe. It's not going to happen by itself. 100%. And, it, and it's not something you should do as an individual by mm-hmm. yourself. And there's more courage when we do it together. There's more safety when we do it together than I, as an individual, go on a crusade to try to change it. What a key point. 
Allah, for my final question today, there are likely many people who are listening to this conversation who aren't in the safest of work cultures. So for those people, what is it that you want them to remember about their situation and perhaps themselves? I want them to remember that you are not failing as an individual in any way. You are not causing this as an individual in any way. There's nothing that you as an individual are doing wrong. What you need to remember is that there is a systemic issue and problem that is causing this. And you need to reflect for yourself how much harm is this causing me? So you have to flip it. There is this, again, kind of mindset that perpetuates where a lot of folks think it's just me uh, or it's my fault or I'm not doing something right. I'm underperforming or I, I can't figure out how to have a better relationship with my manager. All of these things, right? I don't know how to do the politics game well enough. And I just want every individual to know it's truly not on you as an individual. What you're feeling is a symptom of more systemic problem. And the first step to addressing it is to ask yourself and to start having these conversations with your teammates, with your peers, with your managers, what is going on in the system? that is causing this? Who else feels the same way? How is it impacting you? And being honest and putting the responsibility where it really belongs, which is at that systemic level. It's not, there's nothing wrong with you as a human being. What a great place to leave things. Allah, this has been such a thoughtful, a deeply personally provocative conversation for me. And I really want to say thank you for so generously sharing your thoughts and your insights today. Thank you, Brandon. Allah, what is the best way for people who want to follow the great work that you're doing for the community who may want to learn more about your expertise, to follow the provocative and very thoughtful uh, challenges that you're making out there towards our current work cultures? Uh, I would say LinkedIn is the best place. So please follow me or add me as a connection. I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. And I post everything there and always provide invitations to uh, recordings or my thoughts on LinkedIn. So that's the best way. Thanks, Allah. It's been really great to have this conversation with you. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great to have you here as well. Everything that Allah and I have covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Allah and all of the things we've spoken about. They'll be chaptered on the YouTube video for you to hop around various places. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX research, product management, and design, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast subscribe so it turns up every two weeks and tell someone else about it as well pass it along if you feel that there would be just one other person in your network that would get value from these conversations at depth if you want to reach out to me you can find me on linkedin there's a link to my bio 
on the show notes. You can find a link directly to me, or you can head on over to my website, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!